Uh, we're going to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, just a few verses from there this morning, um, uh, partly in anticipation of Thanksgiving uh, next week. Think about joy and thanks this morning. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, read just verses 16 through 18. These short and simple uh, three commands that Paul gives here. This is God's holy and fallible word. Let's give careful attention to it. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. I'll end a reading there. Among the top uh, few most stressful jobs in the world, and uh, when such things are ranked, uh, is uh, air traffic controllers. Um, they're partially responsible for the safety of many lives every day. Uh, maybe there's someone here that has experience with that. Um, it evidently requires total concentration, and, and even without problems, uh, apparently a controller can have 30 planes at once flying through the air at 500 miles per hour on their radar. Um, of course, they also have to have the ability to adjust quickly to all kinds of problems, problems with uh, the planes, or problems with the weather, uh, or otherwise. Um, uh, apparently, the controllers can't work more than two hours at a time without a significant break, and uh, most of them face mandatory uh, retirement by age 56 uh, because of um, the stress of the job. And again, the hardest part, uh, we're told, is the total and constant concentration uh, that the job requires, the constant attention. Something of an illustration of the fact that anything that is total or constant or unrelenting like that is likely very difficult. Uh, and so as we begin looking at this passage this morning, I want you to see the common thread that runs through all three of these commands here. Uh, put three different ways to emphasize this key point is, is always without ceasing in everything. Uh, that's the common thread. Always without ceasing in everything. Not only are our joy and prayer and thanks um, uh, to characterize the Christian life in some way, but always, without ceasing, in everything, Paul says. Um, a command, if you think about it, to occasional joy or occasional thankfulness uh, would be rather meaningless because we all find joy, we find thanks in, in things from time to time that, that sort of naturally make us feel those things. Um, and so I think Paul's instructions here, the, the fact that these are commands, uh, assumes the difficulty of this. Right? It assumes a measure of suffering in the back, background, a measure of struggle uh, to have a kind of joy and a gratitude always, without ceasing, uh, and in everything. But I want you to feel the, the force also, <clears throat> as we go through this this morning, uh, of a second qualifier of each of these things. So the first qualifier is that they are always, without ceasing. Um, but the second that's descriptive of all three is the end of verse 18 there. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Uh, it's God's will for you. Um, it's will for you, it's will for you in the sense that it, it, these are commands, right, that you would have joy, that you would have thanksgiving, but also in the sense that it's his gift to you. This is what is yours in Christ Jesus, only in Christ Jesus. Um, rejoice, pray, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. 
It's God's desire that you would have joy, that you'd communion with Him in prayer, uh, that you would live in constant gratitude. Again, the passage, I think, assumes the difficulty of that, um, in that it's a command. It, these aren't natural impulses. It assumes that we might be tempted to give up on prayer or not value it as we should. But it's God's will for you in Christ Jesus, not only in the sense of command, but that it's, it's what He's given to you in your union with Christ. And so I want to encourage you to think about it like that this morning as well. Uh, because you're united by saving faith to Christ, God has provided for you constant joy uh, and gratitude in communion with Himself. Let's just look at each of these commands uh, in turn briefly. First, rejoice always. Our first reaction to that command might be, how is that even possible? How can we rejoice always? How when we see the horrors of evil that we experience in this life or of death, of disease, or in my sin, my selfishness, my pride, in the midst of broken relationships or crushed expectations, is that, is that a reasonable command or expectation? We need to understand what, what Christian joy is, what, what Paul is talking about. What is biblical joy? Uh, it's, it's basically synonymous with the, the idea of, of peace, of inner peace or contentment in the New Testament as well. A, a settled inner, not necessarily always external, uh, peace. Um, having a satisfied soul. Um, it, it's helpful to understand, to think about what, what biblical joy is not. Uh, if we're to understand what it means to have joy always. Uh, biblical joy is not the absence of sadness or mourning, or grief. Um, just back in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, Paul had, he was writing to the Thessalonians who had lost some loved ones. Uh, some people in that congregation evidently had died. He was writing to comfort them and encourage them uh, not to grieve as those who have no hope. He's not telling them not to grieve. He assumes that they are rightly grieving. Uh, but they're to do so with, with hope, which is... Very close to the concept of the kind of joy he's talking about. There's many times that you as believers, as, as redeemed people, show that you are redeemed, that you belong to God by grieving, by mourning. It would be inappropriate not to. Right? And so whatever kind of joy Paul is commanding is not at odds with sadness or with, with grief. Uh, biblical joy is also not uh, mere happiness. If we can make a distinction between joy and and mere happiness as an outward uh, emotional high, a, a good feeling. Not, not to say there's anything wrong with that. Happiness in that sense is, is great. Christian joy ought often to lead to feelings of happiness, right? If you don't feel happiness and experience that outwardly, you probably don't have Christian joy if you don't experience that sometimes. But happiness, as, as I'm using that term, is, is an, a surface level thing. It's a circumstantial thing. Right, again, it's a, it's a good thing. All of us might end that sentence, happiness is, with, with different things, different things that make us happy. Right? They give us pleasure. Um, Charles Schultz, the famous cartoonist, famously ended that sentence with, happiness is a warm puppy. Right? Uh, a, uh, you see it on bumper stickers sometimes. It's just a sentimental moment of something that you like. Right? Makes you makes you feel good. And, and happiness in that sense is wonderful, but it's external. It's something that happens to you. You can also recognize that happiness in that sense is, uh, can function as something of a counterfeit joy, a counterfeit to 
biblical joy. Um, you might think that you have peace and contentment, but if all you have is happiness in that sense, it, it can come crashing down right in a moment. Uh, but biblical joy uh, can be permanent. Right? Its, its foundation is God himself. Uh, happiness is built on counterfeit foundations. Counterfeit joy is supported, we might say, by counterfeit gods. Uh, Tim Keller, a while back, wrote a book by that title, Counterfeit Gods, um, in which he lists a number of gods or idols on which happiness might be built, but which can fail, which will fail, ultimately. Here's some of the things that he lists. Political or economic idols, uh, ideologies of the right or the left that sort of absolutize um, some aspect of political order and make that the solution. That's, that's where happiness is found. Uh, sexual or, or relational idols, some kind of romantic idealism or other, um, you know, your family looking just like you want. Or um, He lists cultural idols, uh, radical individualism in, in, in the West that maybe elevates the individual over the family or, or community. And, uh, in the East, at least in some places, uh, something of the opposite that maybe elevates the family or the clan over, over individual rights as leading to happiness. He, he mentions uh, what he calls deep idols or motivational idols, uh, desires for, for power or influence um, uh, or approval. I'm happy if I have the approval of fill-in-the-blank. Um, comfort idolatry. I'm happy if I have this experience or this, this circumstance. But Christian joy is not happiness. It doesn't rest on things like these we come back to what, what it is. What is Christian joy? Again, it's, it's a peace. It's satisfaction, a, a contentment in Christ Jesus, right? A, a settled contentment. Um, it always, isn't always uh, reflected in our outer happiness, right? Um, its foundation is not what you see or feel, uh, what's happening to you. Um, it's what's true of you because you're united to Christ, you're loved, you're forgiven, you're an heir to a kingdom, uh, you're a citizen of heaven, you have the sure promises of God. And so the answer to this may be seemingly impossible, you're to rejoice always in everything without ceasing, is that you are always, without ceasing, in everything, in Christ. Um, in the love and the care and the grace of God. Paul is uh, clear that joy is, this kind of joy is not some abstract ideal for you to work on, or just try harder to, to do. Um, it's something that you have in Christ. Um, the other place that Paul gives a similar command, basically the same command that's probably better known, is Philippians 4, verse 4, where he says, Rejoice always. I will say again, rejoice. In fact, that's not quite all that he said there. He said, Rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoice in the Lord. Not just conjure up some happiness, but rejoice in the Lord and what you have in the Lord. Uh, we read earlier, uh, Elder Mann read earlier, the, what might, we might call the sort of Old Testament version of Paul's great statement of contentment in Philippians 4, um, in Habakkuk chapter 3, where he says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, or fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, so on and so on, Every, everything is failing and we don't have food and shelter and so on, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. 
Of course, the, the rest of Paul's statement of his contentment there in Philippians 4 is, for, whatever, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. That's basically the same concept. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need, with contentment, with joy is what, what he means. Right? And the secret, he says, is, is Christ who strengthens me. I read uh, a while back a, a book uh, testimony by a Ugandan pastor who lived uh, through and pastored a church through um, the reign of Idi Amin, the, the genocidal dictator of the 1970s in, in Uganda, um, committed genocide against his political rivals, against um, certain tribes, against the wealthy, and against Christians, particularly in Uganda. Um, Soldiers for eight years, his soldiers entered the homes of thousands, and um, sometimes they would kill everyone in a home. Uh, often they would just uh, brutally kill the father, the husband, in front of the rest of the family, take all their stuff, and then leave. Um, you wonder how there could be any gratitude or joy or peace in those circumstances. I, I can't even mentally put myself in that kind of a circumstance. They described in the book a few soldiers one day who came to his church. He pastored a large church through this time. The soldiers came not to worship God, but undercover just to sort of spy on the Christians. Uh, and these, these three men had um, killed hundreds of other men in this community. And they saw there at the worship service uh, women that they had widowed, uh, children that they had orphaned. Um, they expected them, of course, to appear broken and crushed by General Amin's power and, and brutality. Uh, but rather, what shocked them was that they saw these women there singing and clapping and praising, even, even joyful. And, and their main response, as described by one of these soldiers who, who later came to Christ, who had himself killed about 200 men in this community, he, he later came to Christ, and he described their main response to seeing that was fear. Be, because what, what kind of power could give people in that kind of suffering, that kind of worldly humiliation, joy? Here they were with all the worldly power over these people, and they were humbled by the power of God, seen through worshiping believers. Uh, seen through their joy. Not, they were not witnessing happiness over the circumstances, but, but biblical joy. In Christ, you have that joy. Let's consider, secondly, Paul's command, pray without ceasing. Again, we need to be clear what, what he means and what he does not mean. He cannot mean that we're to be uh, consciously uh, fully engaged in prayer at every moment uh, of the day. That's far from possible, of course. I think what he means is, is uh, partly in line with what Jesus was teaching in Luke 18 in the parable, where it says he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Right? That's the prayer of the persistent widow. She, she kept on praying, right? She, she kept on petitioning the judge, right? She wasn't necessarily at his house every moment all the time, but she didn't, she didn't give up. She didn't come to believe that it wasn't worth it uh, to go and petition him. Along with that, certainly Paul, Paul's command here has something to say about the frequency of our prayer. Um, even if you're not on your knees in, in quiet and uh, praying consciously and without distraction uh, all the time, you'll be praying 
little prayers throughout the day, right? or being prayerful in your thoughts? What motivates us to that kind of prayer, praying always and continuing in prayer? You know, thinking of the world that Paul was writing in, the, uh, the, the concept, the previous concept of, of a constant joy and contentment is, is somewhat unique to, to Christianity, um, understanding that in union with Christ. Uh, prayer was not unique at all among other pagan religions uh, in the world. Uh, but what distinguished Christian prayer, there, there were sharp distinctions between Christian prayer and other pagan religions' prayer. Generally, those other pagan religions, prayer functioned uh, as a means of impressing the gods and convincing them to favor you. Right? But Christian prayer begins on the, on the basis of what you already have. Right? Who you already are. Already having God's favor. Understanding God as, as your loving Father. I want you to note also that Paul several times joins prayer, in, in his writing, joins prayer with joy and gratitude, as he does here. Uh, Colossians 4, for example, continues steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving, prayer and thanksgiving. Or Romans 12, rejoice in hope, end of that verse, be constant in prayer. Um, probably, I think he keeps joining prayer and thanks and joy together because there are so many circumstances that that war against our joy or, or threaten to, to steal away our gratitude. Right? And so it's your privilege to and, and your need to pray for joy, to pray for that hope and that peace uh, against all of those things that, that would steal it away from you. It's, it's something like what, what Jesus urged his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane uh, to pray. He said, stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man, to, to stand in, in faith, in contentment, in joy, in, in the truth, and, and so on. Uh, we need to pray against all these things that happen as well in our, in our lives, that we would have joy and thanks. And then finally, consider... Um, uh, number three, in everything, give thanks. Again, it seems like maybe a very simple idea. Let's think carefully about what it means to give thanks. Thanks or thankfulness um, is a concept that's, or at least a word that's used commonly in our, in our popular culture. It's a word uh, that has deep biblical meaning like uh, faith, for example, that's been stripped of much of its Real meaning, though, right? Faith um, is a word often used in pop culture, but means really nothing more than just a, a good feeling, right? A, a sense that things are going to turn out okay, right? Uh, thankfulness is, is used in a similar way, right? But both of those concepts, biblically, to have any meaning, have an object, right? Faith has an object. It, it's God. A thanksgiving has an object. Uh, it's, it's towards God. Next week, we... Uh, have Thanksgiving Day, right? And the, the, a day particularly we, uh, many people uh, consider uh, thanks uh, particularly. Reminded yearly of, of the ridiculousness, though, the logical contradiction of a day of Thanksgiving for a secular society, right? For a people without God. And yet many people continue increasingly even to insist on the appropriateness of a secular Thanksgiving, 
right? A Thanksgiving without an object. A few years ago, there was a Washington Post article titled this, Grateful Without God, A Secular Thanksgiving. Uh, and it was kind of a uh, how-to, you know, how do you do Thanksgiving and, and what is it without, without God? And the author interviewed many people who are promoting the holiday as a secular ritual uh, and, and trying to hold on to some significant meaning and significance for Thanksgiving. Um, it, it quotes one person um, as saying that Thanksgiving is an opportunity to acknowledge how lucky we are in the grand scheme of the universe. Um, it lists uh, many places where you can direct your thanks um, towards other people in your life or towards good luck uh, and anything but God. Uh, it notes the popular rise of saying uh, secular grace before a meal. Uh, this is a, a big thing, um, a practice to which there, there are whole websites devoted to teaching you how to say secular grace um, with, with uh, movements and so on. Um, the Washington Post article concludes uh, then with several sample secular grace prayers um, and a link to a website uh, titled, Thanksgiving Non-Prayers for Humanists. Uh, well, the Bible would assure us that gratitude is nonsensical concept without God, right? In, in a universe that's by chance. How, how can someone be thankful for a meaningless life that has no design or purpose, a life that could end at any moment in, in utter meaninglessness? Right? There's nothing really logically to be thankful for. There's no object of thanks. By contrast, the Christian, Paul says, in everything is grateful to God. I do want to be clear that that doesn't mean that you are to be thankful for everything. We're not thankful for everything in the sense that we have to act like everything that we see or do or experience, the, the suffering uh, is, is good and happy. We're thankful in everything, but even so, that, that again can seem like an impossible, maybe unreasonable command. Even, even a Christian might wonder, can I not have a break from that sometimes, right? If I'm, uh, believers are facing death or disease or facing war or loss of their home or their families, and, and we could go on and on. And yet the Bible assures us in everything there's always reason for thanks. What is that reason? How can we be grateful? I'm going to suggest just really briefly three reasons we can be thankful. One is that as Christians we understand we deserve nothing for which to be thankful. Even the smallest things for which we're thankful, we, we don't deserve them. And yet the greatest things, the ultimate things that we could possibly be thankful for, uh, union with Christ, the love of God, His promises, a, a sure and eternal future, His perfect plan, His forgiveness of our sins, you have these and you can never lose them. And you, you, Though you deserve nothing. Secondly, closer related to that, is you have an unchanging God and a relationship to Him that is unchanging. In other words, your, your gratitude is based on who you are and who God is to you, always, without ceasing, in everything. And thirdly, you have the confidence that, that even through suffering, even things that we are not thankful for, even things that we do not call good, 
Even through those, especially through those, God works His will and blesses us. As invisible as that might be, as confusing as it might be, as excruciating as it might be. And so the Bible repeatedly, strikingly connects uh, suffering with Christian joy. They're mentioned in the same sentence over and over. Not, not connecting suffering with happiness, right? but with joy. James begins his letter, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and steadfastness, maturity. Because, in other words, God is at work in that. Uh, Romans 5, Paul says, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance character, and character hope. Uh, 1 Peter 1, that we read earlier this morning, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And yet we have this joy or gratitude in that. Fourthly and, and finally, the fourth point on your outline, I want to consider our, our indirect path to this contentment or, or joy or thankfulness. I just want to close by coming back to verse the end of verse 18 there. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. It's in Christ Jesus. Richard Phillips comments on this Verse, he says, knowing that these blessings are found in Christ Jesus warns us against directly seeking after joy, prayerfulness, and thankfulness. That's really the point I want you to see here. Again, warns us against directly seeking after joy and prayerfulness and thankfulness. What do we mean by that? Well, a while back, um, the route that we took to my son Owen's school um, normally the most direct route was blocked. And we couldn't, there was construction, we couldn't go that way. So we had to take a different route. And it was, it was a very indirect route, it was less direct, but it was the only way to get there. I want to draw a parallel with the way we pursue joy and thanks and really any piece of sanctification. Um, if you want to grow in joy or prayerfulness or gratitude, you don't look to those things or go to those things directly and just try harder to be those things or to do those things. But the indirect route to these things is, is to know Christ better. Right? Who you are in Him. Joy doesn't come by just trying to be happier, trying to smile more, to, to change your feelings, but by knowing Jesus and His promises. Right? And, and know the joy that He's given to you. More or better prayer doesn't come just from scheduling prayer more. That may be a good thing for you to do, but by, by trusting that God is there, that He cares, that you have this great gracious gift of prayer, that you have much benefit in Christ for you. Thankfulness doesn't grow from simply writing a bunch of things on sticky notes and putting them all over your house to remind you. That, that may be a good thing to do. It may help your thankfulness, but... It comes to your heart by meditating on God, who He is to you constantly, always, without ceasing, what He's given to you. We'll sing in just a moment from Psalm 16, where the psalmist says, I have set the Lord always before me, because He is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. I have joy not because I've found a method for being happy, but because I've set the Lord 
before me. Because I'm reminding myself that He is at my right hand. Uh, prayerful joy and thankfulness come to you indirectly, in that sense, only when, when you direct your faith and trust to your Heavenly Father. And you really know and trust that He is good, that He loves you, that He does what is best for you. One, one commentator's summary of this little passage that we've read, these three commands, is living consciously in the Father's love. Living consciously in the Father's love leads to joy prayerfulness, thankfulness that is always without ceasing and in everything. I just want to point you to Jesus as our example in that kind of faith and trust. That's where Hebrews 12 points us as it begins, saying, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame. And the conclusion is so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted, but that you would continue to see that, that joy uh, set before you. Uh, Jesus was facing the greatest evil and suffering imaginable, um, and yet he trusted the Father. He gave thanks in prayer. He saw the joy uh, set before him. And you can trust that Savior who suffered with you and for you, identifies with you, even if you can't understand all that He allows in your life, you can trust the Father uh, who gave His only Son for you. Uh, and your confidence with joy and thankfulness is that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's yours always without ceasing. In everything. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you uh, again this morning for your word. Uh, we thank you for these uh, difficult commands that we need uh, because of our sin. Uh, we thank you for the, uh, the gift that joy and uh, prayer and thanksgiving uh, are to us in Christ. We thank you that we have these in him. Uh, they're not, uh, in one sense, things that we have to conjure up uh, or work on or find, uh, but that we have them in Him. We pray that you would uh, help us today and this week and coming weeks uh, to live in joy and prayer and thanksgiving, uh, always, uh, without ceasing and in everything. Uh, we pray this in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen.